Hello, and welcome to the On the Economy podcast. I'm Jared Bernstein, and you are... Ben Spielberg. Ben, tell us what today's topic is. So today is our Labor Day episode, and there's a lot that we can potentially talk about on Labor Day. It's a holiday that commemorates... It's a big one for me. I like Labor Day. I think it's a huge one. It's a holiday that really marks a lot of gains that workers have won over the years. And the thing that we want to talk about is something we've referenced in prior episodes, and we really want to zero into it. It's this idea of a federal job guarantee. One of the articles that I mentioned back in our third episode ever on full employment was won by three economists, Mark Paul, Sandy Darity, and Derek Hamilton in a magazine called Jacobin. Boy, it'd be great if we could get all three of them to talk to us about this. And we do actually have them today to talk a little bit more about that proposal, which I'm really excited about. And I think it'll be great to flesh out that idea a little bit more because when we say federal job guarantee, what exactly does that mean? And before we get into that, I think we should talk a little bit about why such a thing might be needed. So there's a statistic that I cite ad infinitum, if not ad nauseum, and that's the following. Since about 1980, our labor market has been at full employment only about 30% of the time. Before that, it was at full employment about 70% of the time. Now, I remember acutely from all of my economics classes that the assumption that the economy is at full employment is embedded in almost everything you learn with the one exception of that there are these macroeconomic hiccups where there's a demand contraction and you leave this lovely state of full employment for a while, but the economy naturally gets back to it. Well, if that were the case, then certainly we wouldn't be there only 30% of the time since 1980. That's almost four decades now. So we clearly need to do something else. One other thing I want to underscore, and again, this will take some of our listeners back to that third episode we ever did, is that even the term full employment doesn't necessarily mean that you're at a place where everybody who would like to be employed is able to have a job. And there's a lot of debate about what full employment actually means. Absolutely. And in fact, a great example of that is this moment as we speak. The unemployment rate is quite low, 4.3%. But we know that there are pockets still of weak demand. Some of those are in Rust Belt areas that have been hit by the loss of manufacturing jobs, which I often attribute to persistent trade deficits. Some of those jobs deserts occur in urban areas where there just haven't been enough labor demand for many, many years, decades on end. So even at, quote, full employment, there are going to be people left behind. And this policy that we're talking about today is a direct idea to help mitigate that problem. One of the things I want to highlight, and I think Mark, Sandy, and Derek are going to emphasize in the paper they write for us about this topic, is that this concept of making sure that everybody has the right to a job, basically, is one that has not only been discussed and proposed, it's in some cases been implemented to some degree in United States history. Back in the 1930s and 1940s, FDR, this was a core component of his thinking behind the New Deal. He actually wanted to lay out an economic bill of rights, and one of those rights that he wanted to lay out initially was the right to employment. He did end up implementing the Works Progress Administration, which was a big public jobs program that I think Mark Sandy and Derek's proposal is in the spirit of that. And then even later, when people were talking about the Full Employment Act back in the 1970s, earlier versions of the act talked about doing something of this nature in terms of guaranteeing a job to people. We did something that was kind of a cousin of this idea as recently as the American Recovery Act that was a response to the Great Recession. And this was called the TANF Emergency Fund Program. It was a subsidized employment program where the government paid as much as 80 or 90 percent of the wage of these workers to 
work, often in temporary employment, and it turned out to employ maybe 250,000 people. It worked, I think, quite well. And interestingly, it helped some of these folks who tended to be pretty disadvantaged to get into the labor market, and even after the program ended, to stay in the labor market. So it helped them cross a pretty important barrier there. Now, again, the proposal that Mark, Sandy, and Derek are going to talk about is a little bit different because it's about directly creating jobs in the public sector. thing is more ambitious than what I was talking about. But I think that we can draw on some of the lessons about what worked in terms of seeing the potential that a program like this is going to have. So to summarize, the reality is that the U.S. economy hasn't been at full employment most of the time since 1980. And even now, while we're closing in on full employment, there are pockets where having a program like this would really be very beneficial. But let's get into some music. And Ben, you know, I'm always being the dictator here with the musical interlude, but today I want to give you a chance to choose. How benevolent of you. Yes, I'm a benevolent dictator when it comes to the music. And I have two very different selections for you to choose from. One is My Favorite Fugue by J.S. Bach, and the other is one of my favorite blues songs from the great artist Taj Mahal. So, Bach Fugue or Taj Mahal Blues? I'm going with Taj Mahal Blues, and not just because I'm half Indian. (laughs) So what we're going to hear is how Taj Mahal done changed his way of living. Because, you know, he used to get up early in the morning before the rooster crow for day, and he'd haul on his blue jumper and head out to work that way. So Taj Mahal's going to change his way of living, and I think that's good advice for all of us. Ben, introduce our trio of guests. We're really excited. As we mentioned in the introduction, we have three of our favorite economists here today, two of them from the Cook Center for Social Equity at Duke, and that is William Sandy Darity and Mark Paul, and one from the New School, that's Derek Hamilton. They're writing a paper for us right now that builds off of this Jacobin piece they wrote a while back on this federal job guarantee idea. And I was wondering first if one of you could just kind of outline the proposal that you have. The primary idea we have in the piece is to establish a program that would guarantee employment for every American. Any American citizen seeking work would be able to find work with the federal government. And we describe the agency that would be formed to do this as the National Investment Employment Corps. So the idea is fairly straightforward. Everyone who wants a job could get one. If they're not able to find work in the private sector, they could turn to the government for employment, and the government would provide employment at non-poverty wages so that the minimum salary for any individual joining the National Investment Employment Corps would be at least $23,000 per annum. Derek, what kinds of jobs are we talking about here? We envision transforming our infrastructure to a 21st century infrastructure, both in terms of physical work as well as infrastructure related to developing our human capital. We could certainly rebuild our roads, bridges, but we can also think about providing care work. So we have an aging population, so as the population age, so will our care needs. But in addition to elder care, we have issues with regard to child care. So imagine if we could 
provide high-quality care, its impact not only will be in terms of the recipients of that care, but issues around gender could be addressed. Right now, we have a lot of that care work reserved for, dare I say, women. We can address social stratification by providing the dignity of a wage attached to that type of work, but we could also provide a labor force to free people so that they can leave that type of work and go into the workforce. One other big component of the federal job guarantee is what it does to transform our economy in general, even for those that aren't direct recipients of the job. Well, that raises a question I wanted to ask. So putting on the classical economist hat for a second, it seems like the root of what you're trying to do here is address some sort of market failure. And I guess the question that some of our listeners might be asking themselves is, why? Why do we need a program like this? Why isn't the market providing this solution to this problem? Sandy, maybe you could take a stab at that. The premise of our work is threefold. First, there are conditions where we have major economic crises that drive people out of work. The most recent is the Great Recession. The second concern is that even in good times, we typically have more people seeking employment that the private sector generates. Mm. And then the third concern is that not only do we generally have an inadequate number of jobs to meet everyone's employment needs, but we frequently have a tier of jobs that are of an extremely low quality. They're low paid, they have uncertain hours, and they have no benefits or very few benefits frequently. So by establishing a job guarantee of the type where everyone is assured of a non-poverty wage rate, and also in our proposal, they would be assured of a benefits package of the same quality that's received by civil servants and elected officials in the federal government, we actually set a floor on the compensation that would have to be offered to any worker by the private sector. So not only do we ensure that everyone can have employment, but we also can ensure that everyone would have decently paid employment. So one question that I want to ask following up on that is it seems like the idea of eliminating involuntary unemployment, reducing poverty, are very clear in this proposal. You just outlined kind of another benefit, which is setting this floor for the private sector in terms of the quality of jobs. But there are additional benefits even beyond that that you've talked a little bit about. And I was wondering, Mark, if you could give us a little bit of an overview beyond these more obvious benefits. What else do you see this federal job guarantee is accomplishing? The most obvious one, as you highlighted, is setting a new floor in the labor market. So frequently, advocates of poverty-level wages fight for things like the minimum wage. I know this is something that you and Jared have done a lot of work on. But something we need to keep in mind is that there's still millions of workers that are excluded from even receiving the current minimum wage in our economy, even if it's a poverty-level wage. So the provision of this will provide true access to employment for all workers that are searching for it in the economy. Beyond that, we're going to be able to provide socially useful goods and services that are going to benefit society at large. So we can think of things such as building new roads and additional infrastructure. That's going to reduce transportation costs. It's going to help increase the capacity of the economy. It's going to help also boost private employment as well. So even those that are not necessarily directly obtained 
gaining employment from the program are going to really benefit. One thing that I think is really important to think about with this program is thinking about its potential to transform areas of our economy, such as how we're currently handling the energy crisis and climate change. So, for instance, the labor force could be utilized to help facilitate a green energy transition. And if that were the case, we'd have massive benefits to all of those in our country, as well as globally, from working to decarbonize the U.S. economy. Derek talked about some of those benefits that you just mentioned, too, in terms of fulfilling national needs. And I think that that's a really exciting and interesting component of this proposal. But I do have a question about it because it seems to me like there's almost two parallel tracks that you wouldn't necessarily think would be solved the same way. There's this making sure that we have people who are ready to do the work to fulfill those national needs and then meeting the needs of people who are locked out of the labor market on a consistent basis. How does training work for getting people up to speed on those important projects that you talked about? How does it work when the economy is a lot stronger and not as many people are taking advantage of this federal job guarantee? Does that mean that our investment in these national needs declines? So I'm just kind of curious if you could talk through some of how you think about the interplay between those two different goals. First off, apprenticeship programs be a mechanism by which you can train a labor force, but would be really useful with a federal job guarantee if the apprenticeship programs are attached to a job at the end. What would be problematic is if you have apprenticeship programs and have people investing in this training and don't have jobs waiting for them at the end. As the national needs change, so could the apprenticeship programs and the jobs as well. I just have to underscore that point because I've been playing that particular sandbox for many decades and it's always been the case that we've not put those two extremely obvious points together. Sure, train somebody, but if there's not a job at the end of the training, what's the point? So I just want to say that makes a ton of sense. <laughs> Agree, spot on. You know, I think that's important. And then the issue about when we have a booming economy and trying to coerce people to work in endeavors to build our infrastructure, well, that's not such a bad problem. If we have a booming economy, we would have to use traditional mechanisms like raise wages. That is a problem I'd be happy for us to incur. This solves a lot of problems. It solves the cyclical job problem. It solves the structural job problem. It improves job quality. It meets a lot of negative externalities and corrects them. Is it too good to be true? I mean, not to be a Chicago economist, but why aren't we doing this? Is part of it because of the price tag? I think your proposal comes to something like $600 billion a year, which is 3% of GDP. That's another very large program relative to stuff we have going on already. What do you make of that? The program may cost more than $600 billion, but I'm not certain that that would be the net expense of the program Mm -hmm. because it functions as an anti-poverty program. And so a significant amount of the expenditures that we currently devote to a variety of entitlement programs could be significantly reduced whether it's unemployment insurance or it's other types of direct payments that people receive when they are subjected to poverty. Secondly, we need to get past the view that it's extraordinarily difficult for the government to fund large programs. The fact that at the outset of the Great Recession, huge amounts of funds were generated that were primarily given to the investment banking community suggests to me that there's a huge funding capacity that can be exercised by the government that typically has not been tapped. And in this case, 
we would be funding the well-being and lives of ordinary citizens rather than folks who are the source of the economic crises that we encounter. You're really saying, and I 100% agree with this, that we have the money on a national level to do this if we decide we want to. We just have to decide that we want to raise the money and spend it this way. And if you care about the things that we care about in terms of reducing poverty, ending involuntary part-time employment, creating this national floor that you're talking about for labor standards, and investing in national needs, this is something it seems like our money would be well spent on. The other thing that I think is really important for us to keep in mind here is the cost of poverty currently Mm. in the United States. So there's a recent report out of UC Berkeley that claims that currently the U.S. government spends $153 billion per year subsidizing poverty-level wages. With such a program that we're proposing, we're going to be eliminating poverty wages in the economy. So there's a tremendous amount of savings, both socially and fiscally, from eliminating persistent unemployment from the economy. So I think that we want to take those factors into account, too. One thing I want to ask about and push back a little bit on is I tend to think of some of that money that is spent as very important spending, and I think you would agree, because there are things that complement people's wages and help them still sustain themselves despite working in those low-wage jobs. And I think that A safety net outside of work is also very important for people because not everybody will be able to take advantage of a program like this. A lot of people will, but not everybody is able to work. And so I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about how you see this program as being complementary to some of the other things that we already do. Absolutely. The current social insurance programs, while woefully inadequate, unquestionably sizably reduced poverty in terms of complementing wages and in terms of providing some benefits to individuals who might not be able to work for various reasons. We need to continue to support existing legislation as well as provide complementary legislation that will address the various holes that still might exist in the social safety net. While this program can eliminate involuntary unemployment, there are still going to be some individuals that for various reasons can can't work. And for those individuals, we need to make sure that we have complementary programs to ensure that they're kept out of poverty and are able to have a life lived in dignity with basic needs met. The question that you pose to us is, why hasn't this happened? One of the issues is there will be winners and losers as a result of this policy. Mm. One of the things that this program does is it fundamentally enables workers to have more bargaining power by removing that threat of unemployment. So corporations do stand to lose. There will be a shift in the income that comes from the factors of production away from the corporate sector to labor. So let's get very granular here and try to help our listeners understand how this works. Let's say you're a guy or a gal and you're stuck in a rust belt community with not enough work or you're in an urban community where you're ready to find gainful employment but you can't. How would this work on the ground? So the way that we've established the program, as Sandy discussed, we would have the program establish a National Investment Employment Corps, and that would actually be run through the Secretary of Labor. But how this would work on the ground would be that the individual could go into what are today unemployment offices, which we could transform under the program to employment offices, which would put people to work. They could go into the office and they could get a job on demand. An important aspect of the program is that the exact undertakings of the program will be developed in conjunction with local and state governments because the skills of the unemployed workforce, for instance, let's say in rural Indiana, might be different than in the city of Philadelphia. So the idea would be that the local governments would work with the federal government to come up with programs that would 
provide the greatest benefit to the community as well as would be appropriate for the workforce that's in need in that region. So two questions following up on that. One, do we worry at all about workers who already have jobs being displaced by people who get these jobs? And two, can somebody get fired? It's a job guarantee. So suppose somebody's not showing up or doing what's expected of them. What exactly happens? When we present the program, people often criticize it by saying that you're going to substitute low-wage workers or displace low-wage workers. Our response often is good. It transforms the U.S. economy away from low-wage work. So if the private sector is going to offer jobs, they will have to be good jobs because of that competition. If crappy jobs that exist today for people disappear, that's a feature, not a bug. I love that. I think that's great. And then the other part that you asked about can people be fired? You don't get paid if you don't show up for work. I wouldn't necessarily use the term fired, but you won't be paid if you're not engaging in work. There's another kind of incentive dimension to this program as well that's associated with the fact that we envision having a job ladder so that there would be some opportunities for people to advance within the National Investment Employment Corps. Then there's an addendum to that, which is people would have to work a minimum of 30 hours to be able to access the benefits package. So Sandy, you have a long career of doing very important and trenchant research into economic injustice, especially with a racial emphasis. Can you talk a little bit about how this idea, I don't want to say it's a culmination, maybe that's too grandiose, but how it comes out of your long history of plumbing these depths? This is strongly related to my recognition, and it's a recognition that's shared in work that Mark and Derek and I have been doing together, that there are certain groups of workers who are excluded from the workforce to a higher degree than others, and excluded despite the fact that they have what we might refer to as qualifications that really are no different from folks who actually do get in. And so among those categories of workers, I would include folks who have been imprisoned and who have completed their terms. Ex-felons have a very difficult time finding employment, regardless of what other attributes they have. In addition, young military veterans have an extraordinarily hard time finding employment. Individuals who have some type of a disability are frequently assumed to not be able to perform useful work, whereas individuals who are disabled are extremely abled in ways that most of us don't recognize. And then, of course, there's the phenomenon of racial discrimination, which is indexed by the differential unemployment rate between blacks and whites in the United States, where the black rate of unemployment is consistently two times as high as the white rate of unemployment. That holds for every level of educational attainment. And in fact, blacks who have completed college actually have a higher unemployment rate than all whites taken collectively. So there's a much greater risk of being unemployed if you are black and American. And so having a program like this where everyone is assured an opportunity to obtain work is one that addresses the problems of segments of our community who have much greater risk of being unemployed. Andy's answer fits very well with the question you raised earlier about market failure. So why have a federal job guarantee? Well, if we look across race, there's clearly market failure. Well, 
Derek, Sandy, Mark, thank you so much for really getting into the weeds with us here and we're really looking forward to promulgating your paper once we get it out. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, well, that was a great discussion, and I really love having a bold idea on here. Hopefully, some people will take note when this paper comes out and try to operationalize this proposal from Mark, Sandy, and Derek, because it would really help tons of people in the United States. Two quick points I just want to make about it to give our listeners a little bit more context. We talked a little bit about this, but first, I just want to note that a program like this, even though it is so ambitious, it doesn't fully solve poverty because not everybody can work. So as we mentioned, it's really important to view something that is not conditioned on work as a complement to this proposal. Complement, not a substitute. That is an important insight. It kind of reminds me of something I believe we've talked about before here, which is the idea that if people want to work, they should be able to, and that's what the Guaranteed Jobs Program is about. But work requirements really have no place in a smart anti-poverty program. And that kind of leads me into the second point I was going to make, which is this is something that at the same time really allows you to see whether people who are always saying that work is a leg up to people really believe in it. Well, let me lodge a bit of a caveat or an asterisk to that point, which is that one of the things you hear from conservatives is that really there's a market solution to this and that you don't need a program like this because the market's going to create all of the gainful employment opportunities that people need. And the point that I was trying to hammer in the introduction today is that's just empirically not the case. All right, well, I think we should go to a feature that we haven't done in a while, which is our mailbag. If you recall, you can email us at otepodcast at gmail.com, and we'll think about answering some of the questions you have. And one that we got recently that I thought was pretty interesting was from Dan. And Dan asks whether inequality that we've talked about in prior episodes is exacerbated by new types of spending on things like cell phones, the Internet, that didn't exist before inequality was actually increasing. I don't have a great answer for that. I mean, there is some evidence that if you look at inequality within consumer spending, that too has gone up, perhaps not as much as income inequality because people can borrow to make up the difference. But what Dan's question made me think of was this toxic stress debate that occurs around poverty. Basically, if you can't afford a cell phone or good internet connection, if you can't provide your kids with the computer power that they need, clearly they and you are at a great disadvantage. And this is kind of a variant on the insight I often hear from you, Ben, that one of the problems with being poor is that you don't have enough money. I would say the key (laughs) problem with being poor is that you don't have enough money. And that is a great point that things like the internet and cell phones are things that we wouldn't have thought of as being in the basket of basic needs a long time ago. Now, today, you're pretty much screwed if you don't have access to No question. And this does really to an interesting area of inequality research that looks at the gap between what high-income families do and what low-income families do when it comes to investing in their children. If you go back a few decades, the difference between investments in kids, and I'm talking about vacations, books, tutoring, sports, it used to be a 4x difference. That is, the top 25% invested four times more in their kids than the bottom. That number is now seven. The wealthiest families invest seven times more than low-income families in their children. And I think that almost certainly does feed into some of the dynamics of income inequality and immobility. The thing I just want to underscore about that is that that is not a matter of desire. It's a matter of ability. Low-income families have just as much commitment to investing in their kids. They're just not able to because they don't have the money to do so. Now, the last thing we want to do before getting to our joke is introduce one other feature that we haven't done before, but we thought we'd both tell you about 
a podcast that we listen to. Not that, quite as good as this one, but, you know, worth checking out. Yeah, we like them. And so the one that I was going to highlight is a podcast on education called Have You Heard? Actually, before I started working in policy, I was a middle school math and science teacher and an instructional coach out in California. I was very involved in my teacher's union out there. And Have You Heard? is a podcast from Jennifer Brookshire and Jack Schneider, where they get into some of the narratives in education reform and how oftentimes things aren't what they seem in the education landscape. Mm. And so I really appreciate that podcast. Jack used to be my high school teacher, but he's now a professor (laughs) of education. I'm going to listen to that one because I really find education policy fascinating, and I don't know enough about it, especially in the era of charters. My recommendation is the New York Times podcast, The Daily, hosted by Michael Barbaro. And I'm pretty addicted to this, and I recommend it to listeners. And it's pretty quick. I think episodes are about 20 minutes each day. If you listen to The Daily every day, I think you really get a great, quick framing of what's happening in the news. So I guess it's time for me to do the joke this week. Yeah, I let's hear it. I had one. I'll see what you think of this one. So there's a traveler on a cannibal island, and it's his first time to the island. He walks by a store and he sees a sign with some brains for sale. (laughs) And the sign gives different prices of different brains. Artist brains are $10 a pound. Philosopher brains are $12 a pound. Scientist brains are $15 a pound. And economist brains are $20 a pound. And the traveler looks at the sign and he says to the shopkeeper, wow, economist brains are really popular. And the shopkeeper looks back to him and says, are you kidding? Do you have any idea how many economists you need to kill to get a pound of brains? Okay, that is macabre. And for this week, that's On the Economy.